Welcome to the Chris Rawl Show. My name is Chris Rawl. We are almost exactly one month away from the finest season opening football game you could ever in a million years dream up. Nebraska and Northwestern, two Big Ten West teams banished from the United States of America and sent to Ireland. So those poor citizens have to sit and watch a football game that they normally would never be able to watch. And it's going to be grubby as hell, but it's going to be football. It's going to usher in the season. And I'm very excited for that as we sit here in present day with no sports on the calendar that matter for the next month. However, it's a great time for two things. One, sign up for my newsletter at chrisrawl.com. It's free. It's easy. And number two, to talk about a lot of things that I think are going to go into this upcoming football season. So that's where we will start today's show because I want to talk about passing game and I want to talk about the value of wide receiver position. I was weaned on option football. It was a great time in my life as a young lad in the mid 90s. I fall in love with Nebraska football and that took me down a dark path into present day. At the same time, Nebraska was an option powerhouse, just fullback dives, halfback isos, quarterback running around the edge. You got to plan for all these things. It was my introduction to football, you know, the power of the ground game. That's kind of just the way that my early football brain was shaped, where A, I loved it, and B, I really firmly believed because I was watching Nebraska that, okay, this is the way that you win. You get a big physical offensive line, you maul people up front, you get a talented quarterback who can kind of be the orchestrator of this attack, and you get a handful of fullbacks and halfbacks who can all do specific things and you're good to go. And we saw that in the mid 90s with Nebraska as they're winning three national titles in four years. And I look back to the clinching games of each of those three national title seasons where they're playing really, really, really good teams. The first one, it's against Miami in the Orange Bowl, their home stadium. They're anchored by Warren Sapp, who would go on to be one of the very best defensive tackles in the history of football with Tampa Bay. And Nebraska just kind of wore them down that night. They were down 17-9 at one point, and Nebraska just stayed true, stayed true, stayed true to the option. Just trust that things are going to get tough and physical, and it's muggy out here in South Florida, and they're going to wilt. And that's exactly what happened. You know, there's the famous line about Tommy Frazier, the quarterback in Nebraska at the time, telling Warren Sapp he's too fat. Call him fat boy, which is a great, <laughs> great insult. Just, you can't keep up with this fat boy, right? And Nebraska did the same thing against Florida as they were just mauling Steve Spurrier, that fun and gun offense, which was interestingly enough, kind of a precursor to where football was headed. Spread it out, attack, really revolutionary at the time for Florida. They're undefeated coming into that Fiesta Bowl after the 95 season. Nebraska's got that same traditional, just we're going to triple option you to death. You know what's coming, try and stop us. And Nebraska, I mean, they murder them. They win 62-24. It was another confirmation in my mind of, okay, you know, the power of the ground game, the power of the ground game, this is how you win. And after the 97 season, they play, interestingly enough, another team that was kind of signaling where football was headed, Peyton Manning in Tennessee. They weren't spreading it out in the same manner that Florida was, but it was more of a pro-style attack that really relied upon this emphasis on passing. When you have Peyton Manning, you want him to pass. That's pretty simple. You also want him to orchestrate everything at the line, which is what he was doing and what he really started to do to as good of a degree as we've ever seen with the Colts and then the Broncos. But Nebraska, they, they want all, all those teams, you know? Tennessee, they beat 42-17. So for me, it was just, okay, physical dominance is what you need within this sport. And actually, still in present day, I, I still believe that. You know, physical dominance is always going to be a trademark of football as long as it is played in the manner that it has been played. Now, how that occurs, 
that physical dominance, that has kind of transitioned over time. You know, the option, the really just ground heavy power attacks, those are pretty much gone. They're 100% gone across the board in the NFL. The closest we have is probably the Ravens. And that's just, it's a heavier game through the prism of present day football, where you still need to spread people out and throw it like Lamar Jackson can do and all that kind of stuff. The collegiate game, there are no powers within the sport that abide by those oldish standards of how you win football games, dating back to 70s and 80s with the wishbone and all that kind of stuff, or into Nebraska's slightly more modern approach within the 90s. You don't see that. You see it with service academies and a couple fringe dog shit teams at the tail end of your FBS and FCS teams, but you don't see that from anybody else. Now, there are two things that really arose out of this time period that I carry into present day. Number one, I'm a firm believer that football teams are built from the lines out. Believe that then, believe that now. The other part is where a lot of people will probably disagree with me. And I will readily admit I get (laughs) a little bit into maybe not full conspiracy theory, man, but it's a little bit more scatterbrained of a thought, which is I'm one of the holdout believers that the option can always be successful at any level, even within present day. A lot of people don't believe that, you know, the analytical movement, which I abide by the vast majority of its tenements, it's always going to be against a run-heavy approach. It just is. You know, passing is going to be more efficient. We like efficiency, so on and so forth. Now, where I think there's still room for this is just as a stylistic difference to what everybody else is doing. The zig when everybody else is zagging approach, where you see cyclical stuff within sports. I'm talking about it on the show all the time. And I do think there is a window or a path where a team under the right power structure and vision could really do damage utilizing this brand of football. There are two games actually that I really think about that have occurred within the last decade-ish at the collegiate level that I think for me is confirmation for others. People could just go, well, that's, those are just two games. But the first one was in 2011. Alabama was hosting Georgia Southern. This Alabama team, they won the national title that year. One of the very best defenses in the history of the sport. One of the very best defenses I have ever watched. The 2011 Alabama defense, they gave up 183 yards per game against an SEC schedule. They played 13 games that year. 183 yards per game and just over eight points per game, 8.15. We're talking about an all-time, all-time defense. Now, what's interesting is there was one team that season who topped 20 points. Georgia Southern, who coincidentally enough also ran a triple option attack because they're much lower caliber of football team than Alabama. And Georgia Southern, they scored 21 points in that game, which you hear just void of context. You go, who cares? They scored 21 points. When you understand this was the highest scoring output of any team, it was almost triple what they gave up to every other team, including all SEC teams across their conference schedule. And Georgia Southern rushed for 302 yards in that game on just 39 carries. We're talking over 120 yards of difference from what they gave up total on a per game basis throughout the rest of the season. It was a game that as I was watching, you know, Alabama was, let's be honest, Alabama's never really in doubt that they're going to lose a game like that, but they're struggling and it's relatively close in the second half before they pull away, they win 45, 21. But for me, I'm just going, I just, I will always think there's a place for this kind of football. I just always will. Maybe it's because I'm so biased and I grew up in Nebraska when they were at the peak of their powers and it was a different sport and it was a different time, all that kind of stuff. Maybe, maybe that's true. But I watch a game like 2011 Georgia Southern Alabama and I go, I don't know. There's just something there. This is the best defense in the nation. One of the best defenses of the last 30 years. And they're still struggling against a team with significantly inferior talent. 
that's running this specific system? What if you have a team with talent running this system backed by a good defense? I'm always intrigued by that idea. The other game was in 2018. It was a playoff team, Oklahoma. Game happened in September. They were hosting Army. Service Academy, you know they're going to come in and run the triple option. This is the year Kyler Murray wins the Heisman Trophy. They lose to Alabama in the playoff. Really good football team, obviously. And Army comes into Norman, and they string the game along. They take it to overtime. They end up losing on a Kyler Murray to CeeDee Lamb touchdown pass, two names that you will recognize in present-day NFL. Very high-level players. Uh, if you look at the rosters, you understand one had talent and one didn't. It was a bunch of Army fellas. But running the triple option, they had immense success against, yes, granted, that's a defense that is not going to be anywhere near an Alabama caliber. But what was interesting about this game is, A, they took it overtime, very easily could have won. B, they rushed for 339 yards within that game. And C, the most intriguing part was they control the clock, which is, it's the old-timey football thing. We know that it doesn't have as much importance as we were led to believe it had back in the day when everybody had to run and everybody wants to control the clock and get three yards and get three yards and get three yards and get three yards and play defense. But within this game against a team that just wants to go pell-mell and play every game at a breakneck pace and finish the scoreboard 62 to 40, they came in and said, we're just going to control the clock. They had 45 minutes of possession time to 15 for Oklahoma in regulation. They just, every drive seemed like it was 10 minutes long. Every drive actually kind of was 10 minutes long. <laughs> I went back and looked at their drive chart and I was just remembering the game going, this was such a strange game. Army was just getting three yards every single play over and over and seemed like Oklahoma could never get rhythm, never get filled. The cadence of the game was completely changed because this team came in and had success using this, uh, what, what's kind of perceived to be an archaic system and had a lot of success against one of the playoff teams, one of the four best teams that year. So those are just two independent examples. And again, a lot of you might listen and say, those are just, they're two examples that you cherry picked. And that doesn't necessarily prove that if a team committed to recruiting a team that's actually in a fertile state where they could flush out their defense and have their choice of all the best option players because nobody's really doing that. We don't know if that would succeed. I, I look at it and I go, I don't know. I would love to see that. I guess it's probably the best way I can describe my current thoughts on the matter. Not saying it's 100% hit rate, but I would be so intrigued to watch a team do that. And I do believe they would have success. So there's always a place for running the football. I believe that even analytical people believe that, which I actually consider myself to be one of those people still to this day. What has changed is where running is valued. The biggest thing within analytical movement is you don't want to run on first down. There's just these pointless runs that in the past, we always say this is a rundown. That's why we do it. We don't like that anymore. I agree with that. Everybody, well, most people agree with that. Within the red zone, now we have an increased understanding of this is actually where you want to be at your best running the football. This is where yards are going to be the hardest to come by, especially at the NFL level. Defenses, the field is shrunk. You can't stretch them vertically. So it's really important if you can actually run within this framework. Analytics has changed football in a lot of ways. But that increased understanding of efficiency has really taken the sport down the path of an increased reliance upon the passing game. Passing is more efficient than running. There are a million different numbers that will back that up. That is definitely true. And because of that, within the last decade, passing has exploded at every level of football. It started at high school. You're getting spread systems back in the 2000s, just kind of really just running like wildfire within the high school level. Then it's the trickle up effect where, okay, now the collegiate game is moving that way. Okay, now we're getting up to the NFL level and you're seeing that transformation across the board. Passing, 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 passing. You know, you look at the two most iconic teams within the NFL and collegiate game, and they've mirrored that transition. 
Alabama from 2011 to 2021, they're polar opposites offensively. 2011 ground and pound, 2021, Mac Jones, Devontae Smith, one of the best offenses we've ever seen. And at the NFL level, look at the 2007 Patriots, what they ushered in. They said, Tom Brady, go on the shotgun every play. We'll get Randy Moss. We'll get Wes Welker. We'll just spread people out. They won't be prepared for this. You're one of the best quarterbacks ever. You're going to know how to orchestrate this attack. And they annihilated opponents all season long until they lost in the Super Bowl, their only loss of the season. The two most iconic teams doing what now everybody wants to do. This is how you went, right? It kind of mirrors the shift across all sports of just how our understanding of efficiency has really changed because of numbers. You know, passing in football is to three-point shooting in basketball or puck-moving defensemen in hockey or on-base percentage in baseball. Pick your poison. There's a bunch of different things that have really informed and then altered the way that the sport is played. Many people would argue for the worst. Some would say this is better. Just it's kind of pick what you like, right? Now, within the framework of that, it's not to say that everything else doesn't matter, but all of these things are taking on added importance by the day. Everybody wants to shoot the three in basketball. Everybody. While you're seeing every center go out to the three-point line, NHL teams, at least the smartest ones, are really starting to understand, ooh, people who in the past we would never think about ever as defensemen because they're too small or they don't do this or they don't cross-check people hard enough. If they can lead breakouts from their own zone consistently, that is worth its weight in gold. Baseball, you know, the money ball stuff with Oakland way back in the day, that's really just now on-base percentage is just a basic tenement of this is how you play baseball. So with football... Passing is very important. Everybody agrees. Everybody wants to do it. It's varying levels of how important it is, but everybody agrees it is important. So we understand that. And now we move through the gate to the next question. You know, as teams seek to separate from one another within a sport that everybody wants to pass and try and identify areas of value that they can exploit. Now you start getting into little more high level stuff. You know, everybody wants to pass. Okay, that's great. But how are you going to separate from everybody else? It can't just be as simple as we'll just have all the best players, especially in the NFL because it's a hard cap league. So then you move to the next question. You go, okay, well, understanding everybody wants to pass and understanding there's always going to be areas of value we can identify and exploit. How do we construct a roster that can pass and win? This will be me preaching on my soapbox for the nine millionth time as we segue into talking about the NFL. Hard cap leagues are the best leagues. Because of this reason, there's a reason that the NHL and the NFL's off seasons are as interesting as other sports, because there has to be so much thought put into the way that you structure your team. You can't do what Alabama can do at the collegiate level or Ohio State's doing or Georgia's doing and just say, we can sign all of the best players and everybody else will be light years behind us. There has to be genuine thought put into, we want to pass, we want to win. We know there's a correlation between those two concepts. But how do we arrive at that destination under a hard salary cap? Within the NFL, it's just how much cap space are you willing to dedicate to pass catchers in 2022? Every team's answer is going to vary here. And why I'm talking about it today is, well, first, because there's no sports. But second, large portions of the offseason, the most interesting moves that have occurred within the NFL are tied into this kind of, uh, I guess we can call it a trend, which is just these musical chairs with wide receivers what you want on your team, how you are willing to obtain receivers, all those kinds of questions, you know, within that, uh, just understanding we're going, okay, let's look at the landscape, high school, college, NFL, 
we've seen over a decade of everybody getting into passing. So within that, now we've arrived at the point where every single year entering into the NFL draft, there's never been a larger abundance of pass catchers. Every single season, it, we go, look at this wide receiver class. This is insane. And then the next year comes and we go, look at this wide receiver class. This is insane. You have six first rounders and you have seven first rounders and you have people being drafted in the second round and third round and fourth round and fifth round that go on their teams and immediately are integral pieces of winning franchises. So when you know that and you understand this is a hard capped league, you're going, okay, well, why would we sign wide receivers for big money when you can draft their replacements and pay them one tenth of the money? That's entering into the NFL consciousness in a way that I don't think it really was even 10 years in the past. If you had a really good pass catcher, one of the very best, you probably wanted that person on your team. And even today, there are still a lot of teams that want that on their team. But as we've seen with the three biggest wide receiver moves of the offseason, there's a shift in thinking. Harry Kill traded from Kansas City to Miami. Devontae Adams traded from Green Bay to the Raiders and A.J. Brown traded from the Titans to Philadelphia. We're talking about three of the very best receivers in football. You can order them where you want. I feel comfortable saying those are three top 10 wideouts. Adams and Hill, they're really high up on that list. And A.J. Brown, he's young and he's got room to grow. So they're all awesome players. What's weird is they are all three awesome wide receivers who were traded by teams who are currently in their contention windows. That's pretty interesting and a pretty stark contrast to the past. So you go, why? Why would that happen? Because you're seeing three teams saying, all right, you know, we're trusting in our cap management strategy. And we're also trusting in this abundance of wide receivers coming up through the ranks that has allowed players like uh, Jamar Chase or Justin Jefferson, just two examples from the recent past, to be drafted in the first round, come onto a team and be a superstar from the get-go. We're talking about two of the best receivers in football right there. So Titans, Packers, Chiefs, they let those three players or they trade those three players for additional assets. And as part of those transactions, they're not drafting one for one replacements. You know, Sky Moore, who's picked by the Chiefs last year out of Western Michigan slot receiver. He's not getting drafted because he's going to be Tyreek Hill. Same as Christian Watson, who was drafted by Green Bay, is not going to be Devontae Adams. Same as Traylon Burks is not going to be A.J. Brown drafted by Tennessee. But you're seeing an increased reliance upon. "Mm, Yes, these players are great, but. Maybe we can find some value relative to our peers by just kind of shuffling through wide receivers and not committing exorbitant amounts of money to a player that we know is good, but is also getting into an aging arc that is really hard to predict in football. Would every team love to have a, you know, a a Calvin Johnson? You draft him with the Lions and he plays his whole career there and he's awesome the entire time and then he retires. Yeah, that sounds great. Within today's NFL, with this many wide receivers coming up, Now you see teams start to go, oh yeah, we'd love to have Calvin Johnson, but once we draft him and he gets through his rookie contract, we're going to have an interesting conundrum on our hand of whether or not we want to commit to a guy that we know is good moving forward or whether we're willing to trade him for additional assets and just play the constant churn of the wide receiver game. So let's read something. Comes from Nora Princiati of The Ringer. It's about this wide receiver stuff in the NFL. These trades are part of an on going trend of rising receiver value in the NFL. The prospects entering the league each year from college are as good as they have ever been, and contract values for top veterans have skyrocketed. Earlier this offseason, the Packers and the Chiefs both traded high-profile wide receivers, Devontae Adams and Tyreek Hill respectively. There's no question that both Adams and Hill are great players, but clearly, Green Bay and Kansas City feel better about finding cheaper players to replace them than they do about paying them record-setting money. 
The decisions follow in the path of the Vikings, who drafted Justin Jefferson in 2020 after trading Stephon Diggs to the Bills. Why wouldn't smart teams move on and draft new receivers on cost-controlled rookie deals rather than pay up on second contracts? End quote. It is a fascinating question to me. This is one of the things I've been thinking about the most in the offseason, just this wide receiver game in the NFL and how many teams are engaging with it. The Justin Jefferson, Stephon Diggs trade is a great example because I think both of those teams, Vikings and Bills, would look at it and say, we feel great about how this has played out. Stephon Diggs has been one of the best wide receivers in football for a Bills team that's right in their Super Bowl window. He's been integral to the development of Josh Allen. The same time, the Vikings, they haven't been a contender, but they're feeling great about swapping out Stephon Diggs for Justin Jefferson, who's been one of the best wide receivers in football and is on a cost-controlled rookie deal. And they're going to have another decision to make when he's up for his next contract. This goes back to the hard cap thing, why I'm always on the soapbox. Because it's impossible to cut corners in a hard cap league and build a perfect roster. You cannot just say all the best players come on our team like you can in baseball or European soccer or stuff like that. You have to be really intentional about the way you are constructing your team to the point where it's an actual issue when you have Devontae Adams and Tyreek Hill up for their contracts and they want record setting money and you have to make a decision rather than in a non hard cap league, you would just say, yeah, okay, whatever. Here you go. In a hard cap league, you go, we have to think about asset allocation. We have to think about what we value. Those two things are paramount in a hard cap league. So how does a wide receiver work into those two things? I can speak to my own personal preferences and, and beliefs. Everybody kind of differs on this subject somewhat. You know, for me, the foundational pieces, I just go quarterback. Obviously, everybody believes that, but line play. Maybe it's tied into my childhood. Maybe it's just tied into me watching football for all of time and going, this is a game about physical dominance. I always believe that every single level, especially at the NFL level, I always want my offensive line and defensive line and build from out. Those are my two keys, quarterback lines. Some people feel similarly. Some people feel differently, especially once you get into the second most important area beyond quarterback. On the flip side of that, I go running back, linebacker. Those are two things I really used to value when I was a kid. You know, look at those early Nebraska teams and Lawrence Phillips and Amon Green, just all these really great running backs, even segueing into the Crow Buckhalter and Dan Alexander stuff. But now I go, those, those are the two least important positions of value, relatively speaking, in the sport, especially at the NFL level. You just, I refuse to believe that you want to be doing what Dallas did with Ezekiel Elliott. I just refuse to believe it. It's such a millstone around your neck. When you draft somebody in the top five to play a position where just you can find anybody at any time and everything they do is pretty much dependent upon their line and their surroundings and their scheme. So what are we even talking about here? And then not to mention they draft him in the top five and then re-up him for his second contract. This was not a wide receiver question where you know this position is valuable. You know this player is good. It was a player on go, transitioning from a rookie contract to a really uh, exorbitant contract playing a position that everybody kind of agrees is the least valuable in the sport. Now, within the high end of the spectrum and the low end of the spectrum, there's a lot of gray area in just how people think, whether that's me or you, just random fans, or whether that's the people who are actually in charge of building out these teams. Quarterbacks, lines, yeah, those are valuable. Running back, linebacker, okay, not so much. Everything in between there, a lot of debate going on. And as I'm looking at the NFL and trying to a, identify trends that currently exist, but B, think about where it's headed and what will lead to success down the road. A big separator within the NFL right now is just 
How do you feel about sinking money into the wide receiver position? We're going to have answers to all of these trades. And maybe it's win-wins, you know? Maybe it plays out like the Vikings-Bills trade. Maybe Green Bay and the Raiders are sitting there three years down the road feeling great about life. And Kansas City, Miami, same thing. Or Tennessee and Philly. But it is, it's gambles on all fronts from all of these teams involved. The two that I find the most interesting are the two most easily identified Super Bowl contenders right now, Green Bay and Kansas City. Because it's it's a hell of a gamble, especially for Green Bay because of the age of their quarterback. But it's also a hell of a gamble for Kansas City because you're letting your most electric playmakers leave. Best playmakers on both teams. Uh, Green Bay, they're going, okay, we're making a calculated gamble in a hard cap league. We're identifying what we value. We think that our quarterback can cover up all of our wide receiver flaws because their wide receiver room, it's as grim as it can, you can possibly find in the NFL. It's either them or the Texans that have the worst wide receiver room in football. They also have the two-time MVP under center. They also have a really good offensive line. They have two really talented tailbacks, both of whom can pass catch out of the backfield. And I think Green Bay is just saying, okay, we know passing is very important, but we have a great quarterback. And if we can flush out the rest of our roster, we want him to kind of paper mache this wide receiver room in a way that only I think very few quarterbacks can. But this is, if, if you can do that, this is one of the quarterbacks who can. And so, yeah, it's going to hurt Rodgers' numbers from, from that standpoint. There's no way around it. It seems almost impossible that he could win the MVP this year because just look at who he's throwing to. I mean, it's Christian Watson, a complete unknown. It's Randall Cobb. It's Alan Lazard. It's Sammy Watkins. I mean, it's just not people you would ever look at and go, that's even a number two option on a normal team. But Green Bay's saying, okay, we can run the ball well. We have an MVP under center. Your numbers are going to be worse to Aaron Rodgers. But strictly from a win-now standpoint, it is very interesting. And I personally don't hate it. I might hate it in week eight when Rodgers is throwing for 200 yards a game and nobody can catch and the Packers maybe are having as much success as I thought. But I think it is a calculated gamble that makes sense to me. You have your quarterback. It's a really big risk to pump a bunch of money into the wide receiver position when you have a bunch of ways to mitigate that, starting with your quarterback, but also just there's receivers everywhere. There's receivers everywhere. Now Green Bay can flush out their defense as they've been doing. Now we can just maybe really break out the play action game and lean a little bit more heavily on the run game. But in turn, we know play action passing. That's one of the things that the analytics movement has really shined a light on and said, this is maybe the most valuable way to pass. When teams have to dedicate resources to stopping the run or even thinking about the run, that is going to be really advantageous for your passing game. Green Bay is making, you know, this is all factored in. Kansas City, it's, it's the same thing, just with a better receiving core. Theirs is less of a huge gamble because Patrick Mahomes is young and they already have a roster that's just really good and they still have Travis Kelsey, one of the best pass-catching tight ends in football and they have one of the best schemers in the history of the game in Andy Reid. And their wide receiver room is nowhere near as decrepit as Green Bay's. Sky Moore, unknown, could be good, who knows, but receiver, rookie receiver coming in. But the signing of MVS, the signing of Juju Smith-Schuster, I think there's a lot of pieces there that make sense. And again, you're going to Mahomes and saying, look, if you have Kelsey and some reasonable wideouts, you can paper mache everything else out. You just can't. And because of that, we're not going to pay Tyreek Hill almost $30 million per year for the next five years because that just doesn't necessarily make sense. That's what both of these teams are saying. 
really interesting. And it's really telling to me that these two teams specifically are saying that because they are two of the smarter teams in football. They have proven that for quite some time. And they're going down a path that we're letting players that we know are really good out the door. We're trading them at a moment when they would definitely 100% still be awesome on our football team. But everything that's currently going on within the shifting landscape of football and passing and wide receiver value, we're identifying that we're going to start doing things now differently than any team would have done them in the past. So it's just the thing that's changing, you know, kill your Bob Dylan times. They are changing. And I want to close today's show by reading something else also comes from the ringer, but this comes from Steven Ruiz. And it's about just this trend that's been going on and where we are currently at the sports evolution with spread out offenses and more athleticism on both sides of the ball than we've ever seen before has made receivers with more robust skill sets as well as deeper receiving cores in general invaluable. Pass catchers have to be able to do a little bit of everything, and the second and third spots on the receiver depth chart have become just as important as the first. NFL teams have increasingly shied away from blitzing the league's best quarterbacks. Instead, defenses have opted to send fewer rushers and flood the field with coverage players to create a numbers advantage. Since 2015, the NFL's blitz rate on third down has dropped from 10.1% to 7.0% per sports info solutions. Today's quarterbacks are just too good to challenge with more aggressive coverages. So defenses have decided to gang up on the receivers instead. The only way to combat increased numbers in coverage is to field more competent receivers. After all, a defense can't throw double teams at every pass catcher on the field. So unless the pendulum swings back in the other direction and offenses try to punish defenses with power run games, which is increasingly unlikely given the growing influence of analytics in the NFL, the value of a good receiver will only continue to increase. At a certain point, the football world will have to acknowledge that this isn't a bubble that's destined to pop. It's just the way things are now. Thank you for listening to The Chris Rawls Show. This podcast is produced by Weston Tanner. Remember to sign up for my newsletter. It's easy. You go to chrisrawls.com and you subscribe. And then every Wednesday, you're going to get a newsletter. It's going to make your heart feel warm and your mind explode. It's going to be good for everybody involved. So go and do that, please. And thank you. I'll be back here on Friday. Friday.